0: Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This is the Voice of San Diego Podcast. I'm Nate John. I usually produce the weekly show that you get on this feed. This week, we are dropping special episodes from PolitiFest. That's our annual Politics and Public Affairs Summit. We usually hold it in person. It's a whole thing, one big day with a lot of elected officials and candidates and experts to talk about the most pressing things that are happening in San Diego that year. This year, though, It was all virtual, so what you're going to hear are Zoom calls and live streams and virtual debates, but still really important topics and interesting things to know ahead of the election. If you like this show, you'll like PolitiFest. So we'll give you some of the best highlights from PolitiFest here in this feed. Right now, the California ballot measure crash course. Voice of San Diego editors, Sarah Libby and Jesse Marks, are going to review each measure on the statewide ballot and give you details for each and some important context to know. Sarah and Jesse. So let's
1: do a little bit of housekeeping to start. Uh, We're gonna be going over the state ballot measures in this session. There are no countywide ballot measures in San Diego this time around, but there are city of San Diego measures and some lesser school districts and water districts and fire districts and things like that. And one handy way to tell which is which is the state measures all begin with proposition and those more local measures begin with measure. So if you hear about measure B, C, D, those are likely city of San Diego or something else that's local to you. So for the 2020 general election, which is on November 3rd, there are 12 statewide ballot measures, and it can be a little bit confusing because they go up to number 25, and that's because they start at 14. So there are 12 of them, and it's kind of a lot to wrap your mind around. I know there have been a little more in recent years, but the good news is that you might be familiar with a lot of these issues already or more familiar than you might think, because Almost everything on the ballot is a redo of a previous attempt to pass something, or it's an attempt to change or overturn an earlier law. And so just a lot of these things are issues that are resurfacing again this year. So like I said, you, you might be more familiar with some of these than you think. So let's start, let's do it. We're gonna start with Prop 14. Hi, Jesse. Hi <laughs> All right. So the first measure on your ballot, Prop 14, is a $5.5 billion general obligation bond. A bond is essentially a loan. Um, the state would be borrowing money and paying it back over a set number of years for this. And it would go to fund stem cell research. Specifically, it funds a group called the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, which was created in a different proposition approved by voters in 2004. So the group is running out of money. In 2019, to suspended new projects because of a lack of funds. Some of the funds from the new bond money, if this passes, would be dedicated um, to specific things. So one portion would be set aside for research and therapies for neurological conditions, specifically things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia. And then the measure would also make changes to this Institute's Citizen Oversight Committee, which was set up the last time around when this was first approved. And it would add new members to that group and it would create a new working group focused on access to treatment and cures. The bond payments for this would come from the state's general fund and it would add up to about $260 million a year for 30 years. Supporters say that the group's existing work has generated new treatments and jobs and that there's hope that further research could improve people's quality of life. Supporters include the UC Board of Regents. So the UC system would be a big beneficiary, the primary beneficiary of these funds because that's where most of the research takes place. Governor Gavin Newsom supports this one as well as several patient advocacy groups, and medical institutions. So Jesse's going to go through uh, what the opponents say. So for each of these measures, we're just going to run through a, a brief overview of what it would do, uh, what supporters want you to know, and what opponents want you to know, and, and who some of those groups include.
2: A couple of things that are worth knowing right off the bat about the Institute for Regenerative Medicine, term that obviously just rolls off the tongue. Um <laughs> first, it's worth understanding that it was initially funded at a time in which Congress had blocked federal funding for stem cell research, so California made the decision to set out on its own, but now that's no longer the case, which is why we're here. The agency has also dealt with conflict of interest issues over the years, as opponents have long claimed that the Oversight Committee's representatives, because they're eligible for grant money, pose a potential conflict. So they've called the integrity of the whole process into question. It's also worth noting that there are standard arguments in this debate over uh, new bond debt and financing, particularly because of COVID at the moment. So opponents have raised the issue of whether or not this is the time to be taking on more debt. There aren't many registered opponents to this ballot measure, but uh, we have found opposition coming from the Center for Genetics and Society, as well as the editorial boards of the OC Register, the San Jose Mercury News, as well as the Bakersfield Californian. They've all urged no votes on this one. So that does it for Prop 14. Let's uh, move over to Prop 15 now. This one, as Sarah mentioned earlier, might sound familiar to you, but there are a couple of things that are worth understanding. It's a constitutional amendment because it's seeking to change an earlier constitutional amendment, which is the infamous Prop 13. So Prop 15 deals with Prop 13 and the original Prop 13, which which was approved decades ago, had famously set property taxes based on a property's purchase price Instead of its current market value, and it also put a cap on future increases to those taxes. So Prop 15, which is what we're voting at this time around, would not touch residential properties at all. And that's important to understand, but it would require businesses and industrial properties, with certain exceptions, to pay based on market value. Since it would create one standard for residential property taxes and another standard for businesses and for industrial taxes, it's, it's often referred to as a split roll tax. And you'll probably hear that a lot in this debate if you're, if you're following it or if you see any of the literature on it that comes to your house. Exemptions include anything that's zoned as agricultural property. That's worth keeping in mind, as well as properties where the business owner has less than $3 million in holdings in the state of California. The Legislative analyst Office, which is a nonpartisan state entity, estimates that this one would generate between $8 billion and $12 billion a year in tax revenue. So of course, the major beneficiaries for that reason would be local public schools as well as local governments. The supporters of this one say the crux of their argument is essentially that just a small fraction of large businesses would have to pay higher taxes. So they consider this to be fair. And most governments and schools desperately need the, the revenue. So they argue that it's good The most high-profile supporters are also kind of a who's who of major Democratic Party leaders. So you got Joe Biden, you've got Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and then you've also got the state Democratic Party as well as teachers unions and the ACLU.
1: So Jesse mentioned that the supporters of this one say that local governments and schools desperately need the money that this would bring in because obviously COVID has impacted a lot of local government budgets. And The opponents of this kind of turn that argument on its head, and that's something you're going to see a lot with all of these measures is supporters saying, we really, really need this because of COVID, and opponents saying, we can't do this because of COVID. So it's kind of a new, interesting dynamic. So the opponents of Prop 15 say that, you know, this is absolutely the wrong time to be making anyone pay higher taxes. And they also argue that, costs could potentially be passed on to consumers. So opponents include several business groups uh, throughout the state, including the San Diego Chamber of Commerce, former Governor Pete Wilson, State Senator Brian Jones of San Diego County, the local county assessor, Ernie Dronenberg, as well as several NAACP branches. All right. So Prop 16, if you're looking for a shorthand, is restoring affirmative action. So this is another constitutional amendment that would overturn a previous constitutional amendment. Voters passed Prop 209 in 1996, which banned the consideration of race, sex, and national origin in public college admissions, government hiring, and contracting. So usually we hear about affirmative action in the context of college admissions, but just know that this also deals with any government hiring decision and contracting decision. So one interesting thing about this one is that both the campaign for Prop 209 back in the 90s and now the campaign to repeal it were both led by San Diegans. So Pete Wilson was the main proponent of Prop 209 and Assemblywoman Shirley Weber is leading the effort to repeal it with Prop 16. So Prop 16 would remove the ban on race-based and sex-based preferences from the California Constitution. So the state and federal constitutions both already ban discrimination on the basis of race and sex. So this would really only deal with preference on the basis of race and sex. So what does preference mean? Courts have ruled that pure racial quotas or race-based point systems in college admissions are unconstitutional, but they have said that considering race as part of a holistic review that considers it as one of many factors, as long as it's going to achieve a really compelling goal, such as a diverse student body, those are allowed. So supporters say that mandating a colorblind system ignores the fact that racism exists. And they also believe that governments should be able to seek out certain people. For example, if a school is in a neighborhood with a large Latino population, they think they should be able to recruit uh, Latino teachers for the classroom, and that right now that they can't do that. They also say that in the 25 years since Prop 209 has been in place, disparities have deepened, which proves that these policies harm women and minorities. Supporters for this one um, are mostly Democrats, a lot of prominent Democrats, but it's important to note that it also includes San Diego Mayor Kim Faulkner. Other supporters include Senators Diane Feinstein and Kamala Harris, Lorena Gonzalez and Shirley Weber, and the ACLU and the UC Board of Regents. Again, this would deal with college admissions. So.
2: Okay, so as for the opponents on this one, the their main argument is that any consideration of race and sex is itself discriminatory, and they've claimed that the American system is not racist in any form. They've also argued that upper middle class, Latino and black Californians will receive all the advantages of this change in the law while doing nothing to recruit new students from economically disadvantaged and working class communities, which is the the root of the problem, they say. And they've also argued that the change is most likely to hurt Asian Americans who are overrepresented in UC admissions. So that's why one of the main opponents of this you'll see is the Chinese American Civic Action Alliance. And on this issue, they are, they're aligned with a number of uh, major conservatives in California. You've got former Congressman Darrell Issa, as well as the California Republican Party as a whole actually. Okay, let's move on to 17 now. Uh, So 17 is one of the easiest to understand because it does something very simply, which would allow people who are on parole to vote. That's basically it. California is one of the few states in the country to require people to complete both their prison as well as their parole sentences before they regain the right to vote. So this measure was placed on the ballot by the legislature, and that's also important to note, which means that a group didn't actually collect signatures for it, which is costly. However, it's also worth noting that this initiative itself would increase county costs for voter materials. So essentially the major argument coming from supporters is that allowing parolees to vote will help them shed their stigma and reintegrate them back into society, that this is a a right that they ought to have like most other states in the country. And again, the major supporters are Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, who who we've heard already and who we'll see again throughout this discussion tonight, as well as Governor Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, The ACLU and the League of Women Voters.
1: All right, so the main argument against this measure is that the parole period is a part of a person's punishment. And so they believe that people should repay their full debt to society, including their parole period, before they're able to regain their voting rights. There aren't a lot of registered opponents of this measure. Uh, One main group is called Crime Victims United of California. All right, let's do Prop 18. So Prop 18, um, I think, is the only one where the number of the ballot measure actually corresponds in a way with what the measure is about. So Prop 18 would allow some 17-year-olds who will be 18 by the time of the general election to vote in the primary. So for example, my birthday is in June. I wouldn't be 18 in March when the primary is happening, but I would be 18 by the time of the general, so I'd be able to vote and vote. This one, again, was placed on the ballot by the legislature. 19 states and the District of Columbia allow 17-year-olds to vote if they'll be 18 by the general election. And like the previous measure, because this would expand the number of people who are able to vote, it would increase costs for counties to provide voting materials. And supporters say that 18-year-olds will be more informed and engaged if they're allowed to participate in the associated primary. And they also say that many of them already have jobs and pay taxes and therefore should be allowed to weigh in on some of these issues. Supporters include Secretary of State Alex Padilla and the League of Conservation Voters.
2: So as for the opponents on this one, they make the argument that 17-year-olds are still kids and their brains aren't fully developed which means that they might be improperly influenced by teachers or parents to vote a certain way. The major opponents on this one include the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, which actually, side note, was instrumental in passing the original Prop 13, but also against Prop 18, this time around, is the Election Integrity Project of California. Okay, so we're making good time. Let's Mm -hmm. move on to Prop 19. So this one is a bit convoluted and hard to understand, and that's obviously bad news. But the good news is that you might, uh, you might already actually understand this one um, because you voted on something that was very similar just a couple of years ago. And if it hasn't been clear to you already, it certainly will be clear by the end of this discussion that the realtors in California really, really, really want this one to pass. So let's walk through it. So Prop 9, we mentioned this during the the discussion of Proposition 15, that under the state's current rules, property taxes are based on a home's value at the time it was purchased, not at its current value. So this initiative, which is Prop 19, would let Californians who are 55 years and older, as well as a few other narrow groups of people like wildfire victims in certain circumstances, they'd be able to buy a new home anywhere in the state and still retain their low taxes. So to fund this tax break, it would also it would also do something else really important that we're calling the Liam Dillon adjustment. He is our former colleague and our friend who works for the Los Angeles Times now. And uh, thanks to him, he reported recently that because of Proposition 13, which, which again was this thing that we talked about, it was approved several decades ago because of Prop 13 and the limitations it put on property taxes, People who inherit property from family members also inherit those really low tax rates even if they don't live in the properties themselves and instead want to rent it out on Airbnb for a bunch of money. If you haven't read it already, Liam actually wrote a really good story about this a couple of years ago and he looked at a beachfront property over in Malibu that was owned by actor Jeff Bridges and his family and the home itself was valued at 6.8 million dollars yet the family only paid $5,700 in taxes in 2017 and they were able to rent it out for $15,000 a month. So So think of it this way. Essentially, Prop 19 would end the property tax break for people who inherit property, but don't actually live there and continue to make money off of it. Most of the new revenues and savings from this measure would be put into two new funds. One of them would help with fire suppression, and the other one would be reimbursement to counties that lose money as a result of this change through the proposition. Closing the inheritance tax break could generate billions of dollars, again, for schools and local governments. And that's one of the main arguments from supporters on this one. They've also argued that it would incentivize seniors to downsize, freeing up housing stock, which is badly needed in California. So obviously, the realtors, as I mentioned earlier, are pretty jazzed up about this. Realtor groups, we tallied, had, had put nearly $20 million into support for this measure. But you've also got firefighter groups. you got uh, Governor Gavin Newsom again. And the California Democratic Party is also on board.
1: So oh, I saw other people referring to what we're calling the Liam Dillon adjustment as the Lebowski loophole. <laughs> so they're both good. I like the Liam Dillon adjustment, um, but because of that, Jeff Bridges example. So I thought that was pretty good. Liam, will um, die. yeah. <laughs> So opponents of this one say that it's simply a giveaway to realtors. Um, Jesse mentioned they've tried this in 2018, and they're back again with this one and have put several million dollars into passing it. And they also argue that people shouldn't be penalized for how they choose to use their inherited property. The main opponent of this one is the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. You'll notice they tend to oppose things that deal with taxes. All right, we are on to Prop 20. So, Prop 20 would roll back um, several pieces of different criminal justice reform measures that have passed over the last decade. So, just as a piece of background, the Supreme Court ordered California to reduce its prison population back in, I think, 2011, which has led to several reform efforts, efforts to move people out of prison and to jail fewer people, um, including Prop 47 in 2014 and Prop 57 in 2016. So this would um, chip away at some pieces of those measures. Prop 57 made certain offenders eligible for parole consideration, and I want to dwell on that point um, really quick just because this is something I, a misconception I kind of hear thrown around in this debate a lot. So. POT 57 did not ensure people will get parole. It made them eligible for parole consideration. So you can be eligible for parole and um, get denied, which is something that happens pretty often. So this measure would revoke parole eligibility for people who commit certain types of theft and fraud crimes, and it would require the parole board to consider additional factors when it weighs whether to grant someone parole. Again, they they come before a parole board, and that board has the power to decide whether somebody gets parole. And Prop Tony would also change some crimes currently charged as misdemeanors to felonies, including theft crimes between 250 and $950. And then the other big piece of this measure that has gotten a lot of attention. Is that it would require people convicted of certain misdemeanors to submit their dna to the state and because of a lot of those measures it would increase costs for state and local courts and for law enforcement so supporters of this one say that reforms have gone too far and led to an increase in thefts and they take issue um, something you'll hear really often with this measure is with certain parole-eligible offenses being labeled as nonviolent crimes. And so they argue that some of those really are violent crimes and should be labeled as such. Supporters include Carl DeMaio, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors, Albertsons and Safeway has pumped a lot of money into this measure as well, and several police unions are supporters.
2: As for the opponents on this one, their argument is essentially this. California already tried uh, locking everyone up who who was encountered in the criminal justice system for many, many years, and it was completely destructive. It cost the state billions of dollars while ruining lives and harming families. They've also noted that we're in the midst of a major reckoning with policing and racial justice in the United States. So this is the wrong time to put something like this forward because it constitutes a step in the opposite direction of history. One of the major opponents against this is former Governor Jerry Brown, who was also instrumental in the passing of the previous criminal justice reform. So he's got some personal investment in this, but we did note notice that he's put up a uh, million dollars. That's uh, Proposition 20. We also noted that former uh, SDPD Chief Bill Lansdowne is opposed to this one, which is interesting, even though there are several police unions who are in favor. Governor Gavin Newsom is a supportive, California Democratic Party supportive, the ACLU, as well as Probation Officers Union, uh, which is interesting too. All right, so let's move on to Prop 21. This will also sound familiar to you um, because it's the latest rent control measure to come up before the state of California. So currently, cities aren't allowed to enact their own rent control measures, and that's important to understand because of the Costa-Hawkins Act. This would replace that law and give cities the option to enact their own laws. So that's a very important point, point to make on this one is that if Prop 21 passes, no cities would actually be required to do anything. It just gives you the option to rent your to pass your own rent control measure after that. But there are a couple of important caveats that we want to note, and one is that cities would be allowed to apply rent control prop uh, rent control measures to properties over 15 years old and that landlords who own no more than two small properties would be exempt from it Uh, it's also worth noting that cities as well as the state could lose tens of millions of dollars per year because landlords would pay less in property taxes so there's a trade-off here there was a similar measure in 2018 um, which I suggested a second ago, and now the same group that put that one up is also putting this one up, which is the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and it's based in Los Angeles. So essentially, one of the other arguments that the supporters make, in addition to those things I just mentioned, is that this will keep people from falling into homelessness, and it'll cut down on gentrification. So major supporters, in addition to the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, include Bernie Sanders, Dolores Huerta, who's a longtime activist, uh, California Democratic Party, as well as the ACLU.
1: Opponents of this one basically just argue that it will discourage builders from creating affordable housing, and they say it will have sort of the opposite of its desired impact, um, and it will actually harm people, you know, at the bottom who who need more affordable housing. Opponents include Gavin Newsom. So I, I believe that this is The only measure in which he's split officially from the California Democratic Party, which supports Prop 21, he is an opponent. And several building and real estate groups, unions representing builders and other trades involved in the construction of homes, as well as the state chamber of commerce. All right. We made it to Prop 22, which is the big one. (laughs) You might think that when people are talking about the big one in California, they're talking about an earthquake, but now they're talking about Prop 22. Okay, so we need some background with this one. In 2019, the state passed AB5, was written by San Diego lawmaker, uh, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, and it laid out a three-part test guiding when a worker could be classified as an independent contractor versus an employee. It also gave city attorneys the power to prosecute businesses that they believe are improperly classifying workers as contractors instead of providing them with employment benefits. So that has resulted in San Diego City Attorney, for instance, um, is in the midst of suing Instacart as well as Uber and Lyft. Um, She's saying that they're improperly classifying their workers under AB5. So AB5 also carved out exemptions for a lot of different professions. So it's a little bit scattershot, who has to follow the rules. But it definitely did not carve out an exemption for gig workers, which is what got us here. So Prop 22 specifically would exempt app-based drivers from AB5. And in exchange, it would provide drivers with some benefits and protections but not everything that they might be entitled to as an employee. So some of those benefits include providing healthcare subsidies for drivers who hit a certain number of hours a week. So it would not provide healthcare, um, it would provide them subsidies to purchase health. It would cap the number of hours drivers could drive in a 24 hour period. It would guarantee them 120% of the minimum wage, although we want to flag that that number is under um, dispute on both sides. So when a driver is kind of idling and waiting for a new ride to come in, that doesn't count toward when they'd be earning this this wage. So um, people say that 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 waiting period is a big part of the job and it wouldn't be covered. So that's important to note. And it would also require the companies to create anti-harassment and other workplace policies that they're not required to create right now. So I want to dwell on kind of two points that I've been covering this debate for a long time, and I've heard two things kind of pop up a lot um, that I want to dispel. I actually went back and looked at the Uber CEO's big New York Times op-ed recently where he argues in favor of Prop 22 and, and just in general their company, and any repeated these uh, misconceptions you know, within a couple sentences of each other, so I wanted to flag them. So one thing that I hear a lot is that AB5 would require companies to make people full-time employees. Uh, the Uber CEO said in his op-ed that Uber would only have full-time jobs for a small fraction of our current drivers. AB5 does not require companies to make someone a full-time employee you could make someone a part-time employee. And that certainly comes with its own costs that you might argue aren't appropriate, but it doesn't require people to become full-time employees. You could also make them a part-time employee. And the other thing I hear a lot um, with regard to gig workers and AB5 is that um, gig workers love the flexibility of their job. And that if we required them to abide by AB5, then they would lose that flexibility. Nothing in AB5 deals with flexibility. An employer could allow their workers to have flexibility if they want to, and most choose not to. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Supporters say that if Prop 22 does not pass, these companies will be forced to cut thousands of drivers at a time when those gigs are badly needed, both because people are struggling financially and also because people are relying on deliveries for things like groceries in the midst of the pandemic. Supporters include Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Instacart. Um, They have pumped more than $180 million into this measure. It's really unlike anything we have ever seen. So if you feel like you're constantly being bombarded with information about Uber and Lyft and Prop 22, you are. We're just talking about extraordinary amounts of money here. And so that's why you're hearing so much about it all the time. Also, several police unions are in favor of this measure, um, as well as chambers of commerce across the state.
2: So as for the opponents on this one, their, their main argument is that, to your point a second ago, Sarah, about how much money is being pumped into this, wealthy corporations shouldn't get to buy their way out of providing basic work place protections like paid sick leave and unemployment insurance, which many of us take for granted. And so the fundamental question that the opponents of this proposition are asking in this election is, do you really want to be driven by someone, uh, one who doesn't have these basic protections, but also in the midst of a pandemic, somebody who's unable to actually take a paid sick day? To your point earlier about how the pandemic is being used on both sides, people are saying this is the time for something or this isn't the time for something. In this case, the opponents are saying this is exactly the wrong time to not give these protections to people who do things like drive you around. Major opponents include Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden as well, a whole bunch of unions, I mean, like basically everybody, um, SEIU, the California Labor Federation, uh, UFCW, the Transport Workers Union of America. We know that this one is getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of money thrown into it, but there's also a lot of interest and a lot of passion around it. And it's a very important issue. OK, but in, for, in the interest of time, let's move on to Prop 23 for now. We've only got a couple more left. Prop 23 is uh, also familiar sounding to you because it would impose new requirements on kidney dialysis clinics, which include requiring a doctor to be on site, reporting infection rate data to the state, getting state permission before closing a clinic. And yes, in fact, if this does sound familiar to you, it's because you did vote on something very similar in 2018, which would have limited the amount of profits that these clinics are allowed to make, but it was rejected by voters at the time. So the Healthcare Labor Union, which put that effort on the ballot in 2018, has brought it this time around in 2020 and to recap their their main argument is essentially that dialysis patients deserve a better standard of care and that the companies that provide this kind of life-saving treatment don't do that and they're putting profits over safety so as you can imagine the major supporters in favor of this one prop 23 are seiu healthcare workers west
1: opponents say that these requirements are largely unnecessary or redundant Um, the clinics say that they already report their infection data to the federal government so that they don't need to be required to report it to the state. They say that they also they already require certain medical professionals to be on site, perhaps not a doctor, um, but that this would be again redundant of that. And that this would, these requirements would drive up their costs. So opponents include the two main dialysis clinic companies. There are two big companies that run dialysis across the state, and the California Medical Association as well um, is opposed to this one, so that's worth Okay, we're moving on to Prop 24. The way these shook out, I took all the even-numbered measures, so I feel bad that I get to talk about data privacy when I know it's so close to Jesse's heart. Sorry, Jesse. <laughs> yeah,
2: the opposition on this one is more interesting, though. I'm not going to lie. Oh, well, there you go. Worked on nice. So-
1: This was something that you were going to vote on in 2018, but didn't because the real estate developer, his name is Alistair McTaggart, who was behind the measure, ended up striking a compromise with state lawmakers. And that resulted in a big landmark data privacy law that was passed in 2018. So this measure um, is also backed by Alistair McTaggart, and it kind of builds on that new state law. So one thing that is important to kind of get across with this measure is that it has a lot of parts and components. And so that's sort of true of of all of these. If you're particularly interested in one of them, I recommend reading the measure in its entirety. But that's really, really true of this one. I want to highlight a few basics of what it would do, but emphasize that it would do a lot. So if you're really interested in this one, it's worth reading in full. So some of those things that it would do include strengthening penalties against businesses that violate the privacy rights of minors. It would let consumers prevent businesses from sharing their personal info, info, and it would also limit the use of what's called sensitive personal info so you might think all of your personal information is sensitive but some of it is more sensitive and it includes things like your health and medical data or your precise geographic location Um, so this would let you protect that a little more intensely it would also establish a new state agency um, that would deal with privacy um, and data protection but it would also reduce the number of businesses that have to comply with the law. So that kind of gives you a sense of why it's important to read a lot of these. Is A lot of these would strengthen protections, but then some of them also kind of go in the other direction, like lessening the number of businesses that have to comply. Supporters say that the existing law, the one that passed in 2018, doesn't have enough enforcement power. It doesn't have enough teeth so that this would give customers more control over their most sensitive personal information. Supporters include Alistair McTaggart, the person responsible for putting it on the ballot, as well as Andrew Yang, the former presidential candidate, and the group Consumer Watchdog.
2: So I think the opposition to this on Prop 24 is, is really, really interesting, because the the opponents who were very skeptical in 2018 of Uh, This effort going through the legislature are now saying that the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 should be allowed to play out and that we should allow lawmakers to take the first shot at fixing or strengthening it. They have also noted that there's no broad coalition, no no broad privacy coalition that's actually supporting this effort. And they've also pointed out that many of the big tech companies are conspicuously silent on this, which is really interesting because it would affect them. Those major opponents include the ACLU, Public Citizen, the League of Women, and we also wanted to flag for you the fact that the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a leading source of of privacy information in the state of California that's based up in San Francisco. They've decided to remain neutral on this one. And essentially what they've said is that the measure contains several steps forward as well as several steps back. And I would strongly encourage anyone who's who's really interested in this in this topic to take a look at what they put together because they have noted a couple of things, a couple of things that they're really critical about. One is the fact that the initiative would allow businesses to charge some customers different prices who want to exercise greater privacy rights. And they've also argued that Prop 24 would expand the power of businesses to refuse a consumer's request to delete their data if the business believes that data retention would help uh, ensure security and integrity. So again, uh, to Sarah's point earlier, follow up on that one if if um, you're interested in it, read it or at least see what the EFF has to say. Okay, one left. We're on Prop 25. We did it. Uh, so Prop 25, a really interesting one. So th- this would essentially make California the first state to swap cash bail for an algorithm to assess a criminal suspect's risk level. When someone is jailed as a suspect in a crime, they generally pay a cash bond to be released before their trial. And then that money is paid back to them once the trial is complete. In 2018, however, state lawmakers passed and uh, Governor Jerry Brown signed into law um, a bill that replaces cash, the cash bail system with a new system to assess whether someone is likely to flee before trial. So in this case, this this time around, Proposition 25, a group of bail businesses have formed uh, to create a coalition that would place a referendum on the ballot to overturn that law, so a little bit, a little bit convoluted, but I think the way to think of this is that a, a yes vote on Prop 25 would uphold the original contested legislation, which itself replaced cash bail with risk assessments for detained suspects awaiting trial. So essentially, the argument from supporters on this one is that people accused of small-scale crimes can languish in jail simply because they can't afford to pay, while the wealthy can easily their way out. And they also argue that the efforts of the the bail bond group behind this measure just goes to show that they only care about money. Some major names that you would recognize, Governor Gavin Newsom is supportive of Prop 25, the California Democratic Party as a whole, the California Medical Association, League of Women Voters. And then you also have a couple of local supporters as well, State Senator Tony Atkins, Assemblyman Todd Gloria, and Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez.
1: So opposition to this one is kind of interesting because it spans both sides of the aisle. So there are two very different arguments against this measure. One is from a more conservative viewpoint um, that argues that the algorithm system isn't any better than the current cash bond system, but it could be more costly and it could also lead to more people going free before their trial and then going on to commit more crimes. And then the other side of the opposition argues that big data can be just as racist as the current system, and this algorithm could eventually lead to racist outcomes and be manipulated. Again, the opponents um, are kind of all over the map. They include the Orange County Board of Supervisors, the American Bail Coalition, the California Peace Officers Association, which is a police group and the California State Conference of the NAACP.
0: Voice of San Diego editors, Sarah Libby and Jesse Marks. You can keep up with all of the statewide news they are watching with the Sacramento Report. That's a weekly newsletter that Sarah puts out every week. You can get that at voiceofsandiego.org Sacramento. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the Voice of San Diego podcast. We'll be dropping more conversations from PolitiFest here soon, so make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you don't miss them. Our regular show will happen on Friday, like usual, with Scott Lewis and Sarah Libby. If you missed PolitiFest, but there were things that you really wanted to catch, you can still watch a lot of sessions from PolitiFest. Just go to politifest.org. I'm Nate John. Talk soon.